0: You're listening to a podcast from Westwind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, good morning, and thank you for being with us in worship this morning. C.S. Lewis has become a household name for millions all across the globe. He is most famous for his children's writings and especially the Chronicles of Narnia. One of my favorite books is titled Mere Christianity, that has sold millions of copies. Some would suggest that Lewis was the most influential Christian of the 20th century. However, that was not always the case. You see, as a young lad, Lewis walked away from the Christian faith because his mother passed away. With cancer. Lewis prayed, and so did others, but God chose not to heal his mother. And Lewis then became a devout atheist because he couldn't reconcile his image or picture of God with all the pain, suffering, injustice, and evil in this world. However, what's beautiful about Lewis's story is his road back to Christianity in Christ began with asking the why God question. Why God so much pain? Why so much suffering, evil, injustice, and hurt in this world? And friends, as I examine Scripture, we see the why God question everywhere in the Bible because it's the question of the ages. The first book of the Bible is the book of Job. Job is 42 chapters written around 1400 B.C. And you could sum up that book with two words, why God? You read the Psalms, there's 150 of them. And continually you'll see this question, why God? For instance, in Psalm 42, 5, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Psalm 43, 2, why have you rejected me, Lord? Why must I go about in sorrow because of my enemy's oppression? And so this morning, we are launching a new series in the book of Habakkuk. And I've titled this series, When God Does Not Make Sense, The Gospel According to Habakkuk. And so like C.S. Lewis, like Job and the psalmist, Habakkuk had more questions than he did answers. My guess is that there is not a person watching this morning who does not have their own unique set of questions. Questions like, why, God, did we have to experience a miscarriage? Why, Father, is my marriage failing? Why, Jesus, are my children walking away from you instead of walking toward you? Why is there so much pain and suffering in my family? Why, Lord, would you allow a COVID-19 virus that is bringing such hurt across the globe? What about the financial loss? How, God, will losing my job and my business closing work for good? And, of course, the list goes on and on. Now, Habakkuk's name means to embrace. And in this study, we're going to discover that God is going to call us to embrace some things we may not want to embrace or to say yes to some things that don't make sense to us. Habakkuk reminds us that our circumstances often cause us to question God, His apparent silence, or even absence in our life. So Habakkuk engages God. And this is. Uh, unique to Habakkuk because typically prophets represent God to man. Here's what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk represents man to God. And what's beautiful about the prophet Habakkuk is that God engages. He responds. And there's this beautiful dialogue we're going to see in the book. If you downloaded your digital worship guide, there is a sermon outline. And Typically, I like to start with a blessing, and it is this. The prophet Habakkuk demonstrates that each one of us must learn to dialogue with God, especially in times of trouble. And so this morning, there's three basic lessons I want to cover from this beautiful first chapter in the book of Habakkuk. Lesson number one, embrace honest wrestling. To understand Habakkuk, we first must understand the context in which it was written. Context is king, and without understanding the context, we'll never grab hold of what the prophet is wrestling with. So let me take you back to 625 BC. There's a righteous king. His name is Josiah. He's seated on the throne. And he's one of the few righteous kings of all of Israel. And he began some great reforms when he discovered the book of the law in the temple. His heart was broken. And he repented. And he led his people back to repentance and to worship of God. However, in 609 B.C., he was killed in a battle at Megiddo. And then in 605 B.C., a history-making battle at Carchemish, where the allied forces of Assyria and Egypt were conquered by the empire Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. So now here we are. 605 BC Habakkuk is a prophet Nebuchadnezzar is on the march he is conquering the world and Josiah the righteous king's son Jehoiakim who's a very unrighteous king is seated on the throne in Judah we pick up the story in 2nd Chronicles 36:5 consider what the bible says about Jehoiakim Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And this is a striking statement. He did what was evil in the sight of God. And so here's the prophet Habakkuk beginning, launching his ministry, seeing the reforms of Josiah, a revival literally, and now Josiah's son Jehoiakim turning it all backwards, doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And Habakkuk's experiencing this, and he's crying out to God. And so I hope you have your Bibles open to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're just going to walk through these 13 verses. But the first four verses, Habakkuk 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges, for the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Notice Habakkuk's vocabulary in verse 1 under the rule of Jehoiakim. He says there's all kinds of evil and violence and iniquity and strife and injustice. Notice, this is among God's people in Judah. And again, coming off the revival and reforms of Josiah, everything turned backwards. And so in verse 2, Habakkuk calls out, why God? He literally screams out, he cries a loud voice with a desperate heart, God, are you there? God, do you care? Habakkuk's honestly wrestling with God. Now look down to verse 12, because Habakkuk's wrestling uh, takes one step further. Verse 12 is a striking statement. Habakkuk says, are you not from eternity? Yahweh, my God. In English, that question does not come across as confrontational. However, in Hebrew, it is absolutely confrontational. It's a rhetorical question. It's not a request for information. It's a punishing statement. In essence, what he was saying is this. He says, God, I thought you were infinite. You were supposed to be the great God all-wise, all-powerful, eternal, from everlasting to everlasting. But right now, God, I'm struggling to embrace that reality. That's Habakkuk's heart. Hebrew scholar Francis I. Anderson states that in most of the 96 occurrences of this word, are you not, in the Old Testament, are in the vigorous human argument. In other words, Habakkuk's arguing with God. He's pouring his heart out. And it doesn't feel very courteous and maybe sometimes disrespectful. Why? Because he's in absolute anguish over the injustices, the evil, the sin, the iniquity that God seems to be tolerating. Yes, among his people. Habakkuk models to us that we can honestly wrestle with God in times of trouble. However, folks, not everyone responds so nobly as Habakkuk. Think about Job's wife. She comes to him and says, Job, listen, curse God and die. Not too helpful from your spouse, right? Think about how Israel responded in their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and the suffering and challenges they experienced. What do they do? It's called displaced aggression. Hurt people hurt people. And so the grumbling and complaining and the pointing the finger at God's servant, Moses, who's leading them to the promised land, they didn't respond very nobly. Some choose to take a more pious approach and simply acquiesce to their pain, to their struggle. They throw their hands up. They put on a happy face. They look good on the outside, but inside there's great turmoil. Or we can simply do what C.S. Lewis initially did and just walk away from God in disbelief. If this is who God is like, count me out. I cannot believe in a God who allows evil, suffering, and injustice. And what I love about Habakkuk, he does none of these. Instead, he engages God with honest inquiry and genuine wrestling. And friends, here's the reason why it's beautiful. Look, if you would, to verses 12 through 13, Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk now recalibrates, very similar to what happens in the Psalms after they pour their heart out to God. He reflects on God's character, and he says this. My holy one, you will not die, Lord. You appointed them to execute judgment. Notice how personal, my rock. You destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Here's what's going on in Habakkuk's life. He is a righteous prophet. He loves God. And I believe we get a sense from the whole book and even chapter 1 that he is jealous for the glory and righteousness of God. That's why he's struggling. The whole of Scripture reminds us that God is a friend to the honest doubter and inquirer who dares to talk to God instead of talking about God. Prayer that includes an element of questioning God can be a means of increasing an individual's faith. Expressing doubts and crying out about unfair situations shows one's trust in God, who does have an answer for humanity's insoluble problems. We're going to see, folks. We're going to discover that God's revelation of himself to Habakkuk gave birth to a finer faith, the grace of God. And his servant's questions became a means of grace to draw Habakkuk closer to himself. And so may I encourage you, the why question is, is valid. It's, it's biblical. And we can come to God with our honest wrestling And so whatever you're experiencing today, know that you have a gracious God who is seated on his throne. And as Hebrew 4 says, come before his throne of grace, and he'll meet you in your time of need. Lesson number two, embrace divine perspective. Look at verses 5 through 11, please. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth, open spaces, to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves at night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Now, just put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes. This is not the answer Habakkuk was looking for. And God's response truly compounds his dilemma. Let's take a moment and recap Habakkuk's dialogue with God. First, God, I asked you if you were even there. Then I asked you, do you care? Now I'm asking you, is it fair? At 50,000 feet, Habakkuk is asking God this, how can you use the unrighteous Babylon to discipline your people or better yet, How can an instrument of evil like Babylon and the prideful king Nebuchadnezzar be used as an instrument of righteousness? So Habakkuk is struggling to comprehend the character and the purposes of God. Habakkuk in essence is saying, God, I thought your plan, I thought your purposes, I thought your mission was to bring light to darkness was to bring hope to the hopeless, was to bring your blessing, your glory, and your good news to the nations, to your people, Israel. Habakkuk, like all of us at times, need to be reminded that God is God. He is sovereign. He is seated on the throne. And folks, we are not. Sometimes we shipwreck our faith By thinking that God is like man, we begin to evaluate his actions on the basis of how we would behave if we were God. We judge God by man's perspective, not by divine perspective. However, we cannot sit in judgment or evaluate God. Why? Because we are finite and he is infinite. Isaiah the prophet helps us greatly when God declared, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration, for as the heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so it begs the question, what is God's perspective? What are his thoughts? And I would like to suggest The key word throughout all of Scripture. It's called salvation. In Genesis 3:15, after Adam and Eve fell to sin, God promised that the seed of a woman would crush the serpent's head, Satan. And then in Genesis 12, we get a better picture of what the seed is all about. God chooses Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and all people on earth will be blessed through your seed, ultimately pointing to Jesus. Now, the Bible in history records that the Babylonian captivity of 70 years resulted in the people of God, uh, the nation of Israel, being scattered all across the ancient world. So track with me for a moment, and I want to paint a beautiful picture of the wisdom and sovereignty of God to bring redemption to all peoples. In 605 B.C., the Prophet Daniel, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken captivity. And for 70 years, Daniel influenced four kings in Babylon. A godly influence to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and then Cyrus. Amazing. Then the Medo-Persian Empire came in, conquered Babylon. And who's on the throne? His name is Artaxerxes. And then we have this beautiful story of Esther. And God using Mordecai, using Esther to save Jews in 127 provinces all across the ancient world. In Esther 8.17, we read this, Trek with me, it's powerful. And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. You know what Esther is saying? People came to honor, revere, and worship Yahweh because the Jews were scattered throughout the 127 provinces and they were converted to Judaism. In other words, the captivity led to salvation among the nations. Track with me here. Acts chapter 2 opens. It's the Feast of Pentecost. And Luke records this. He says, devout people from every nation under heaven heard the gospel. And who is he referring to? He's referring to Jews who came in from all across the ancient world to celebrate Pentecost. Peter preaches, 3,000 come to faith in Christ and were baptized. I want to show you a map right now, and it's powerful, folks, because these people who came to faith in Christ, these Jews, then went back home and as far as west as Rome, and then southwest to Cyrene, and then to Egypt, then to Arabia, then to Elam, Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Turkey, the ancient world was hearing the gospel through the dispersed Jews. There were synagogues scattered all across the ancient world. And then add to that, When the book of Acts unfolds and the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, here's what we see. We see a group of people called God-fears. We have an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 who comes in from Cush, southern Egypt, to worship and he comes to genuine faith in Christ and is baptized. We have a Roman soldier named Cornelius who was a God-fearer in Acts 10. He comes to genuine faith in Christ and is baptized. In Acts 16, we have a professional woman named Lydia who is a God-fearer. She comes to faith in Christ. Her whole family's baptized, and the church is born in her home. Folks, who are the God-fearers? The God-fearers were those who came to revere Yahweh, to honor God, to come to know him uh, from Gentile life, pagan life to Judaism, and now they're here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what God sovereignly did through injustice, through evil, through sin, through pain, through sorrow, he scattered his people among the nations for the grand and express purpose of seeing the gospel expand and his kingdom come. What a beautiful truth. Ecclesiastes tells us this, God works so we will stand in awe of him. And so, are you amazed that our sovereign God seated on the throne uses injustice, evil, calamity, and suffering to accomplish his good, acceptable, and perfect will, redeeming the nations? his kingdom and glory. C.S. Lewis concluded this on his road back to faith in Christ. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. And so I want to encourage you, even this morning, if you are experiencing Loss, hurt, suffering, pain, brokenness, discouragement. Could it be that God is speaking to you right now? Could it be that He's drawn you to Himself? Could it be like C.S. Lewis, you have reconciled uh, how, how pain can be used for God's glory and for good and for the advance of the gospel? Now finally, lesson number three: embrace the grace of God. Look at Habakkuk 1:5, please. This is a core verse in uh, the Old and New Testament, as we're going to see. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your day that you will not believe when you hear about it. And friends, what's remarkable about this, this is written 600 years before Christ came. And the Apostle Paul, on his first missionary journey, is in a place called Pisidia Antioch modern-day Turkey. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he quotes this verse. Let me show that to you in the book of Acts. Acts 13, 38 through 41. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, meaning Jesus, forgiveness of sin is being proclaimed to you, and everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware, just like the prophets, here's a warning that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it. That is an amazing statement because Paul quotes directly from Habakkuk. In the context of the new covenant, in the context of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work that Paul is referring to, of course, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Therefore, 2,600 years ago, God speaks through his prophet Habakkuk and ultimately points us to Jesus. God is saying, I'm going to bring salvation out of judgment. I'm going to bring redemption out of injustice and violence through Jesus Christ at Calvary. Have you ever considered that the definitive why question took place at Calvary? Matthew 27, 46, after six excruciating hours while hanging on a cross, Jesus said this, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? When Jesus came into the world, when Jesus went to the cross, he took the judgment we deserve. Jesus experienced absolute injustice. He was tortured. He suffered. And he died on the cross. The greatest judgment took place. And it's finally explained. Jesus paid our penalty, he took judgment on himself people were standing there in front of the cross looking at Jesus saying, I cannot see what good could ever come out of his crucifixion. But of course, Calvary is the ultimate good. Why did God the Father turn his back on his one and only son? John 3:16 through 18 explains it. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because of sin, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the gospel that Paul preached. In Pisidia, Antioch. This is the gospel that Habakkuk preached. And he's pointing ultimately to Jesus. And so the real question this morning is this in all the pain and suffering and questions in life, have you believed in Jesus? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? That is the gospel, folks. We sung about that this morning. That is the good news. Now you might say, Pastor, how do I do that? Well, just a few thoughts. Number one, it begins with Romans 3.23. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We looked at Judah's sin in 600 BC, the violence, the evil. Oh, it was a mess. But we've all sinned. And sin there is, it's an archery term where you miss the bullseye. What's the bullseye? It's God's standard. It's his holiness. It's his righteousness. Never met a person who's denied the existence of sin in their life that they do fall short. We all know we do. But secondly, Romans 6:23, "The wages of sin is death." And folks, we see death all around us. That's what Habakkuk was seeing. It was painful. Look at the evils, look at the injustice, look at the violence. but the ultimate, ultimate death is separation from God for all eternity. But God doesn't want that to take place. And so. Romans 6.23 finishes with this, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a gift. So the question is, what do we do? Romans 10.9 tells us. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so you might be here this morning and this is like brand new to you. This is like an aha moment. Wow. Jesus will forgive me. Jesus will offer hope. Jesus will take care of the past, present, and future sins. Yes, that is the good news. And so what do you need to do? The Bible is very clear. Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin. That's what Habakkuk was calling for. Jeremiah, a contemporary, was calling for. And turn to the Savior. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you can be. When I made that decision many years ago, I prayed a simple prayer to God the Father in Jesus' name, expressing that I wanted to turn from my sin and put my faith and trust in Christ. And if that's your heart, your desire this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. If you want to put your faith and trust in Christ, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you reveal yourself through the gospel. Today, I confess that I'm a sinner. I want to turn from my sin and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Father, as part of that, I want to confess you. I want to tell others that Jesus Christ is now my Savior and Lord. Give me courage, Father, I pray to do so. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.